Hi, I'm Jane Hong, and this is Mending Lives, where I'm talking with people from a patchwork of places. Some have had their lives ripped apart by loss, some are in the business of repairing others' brokenness, but we're all seeking to make this world more beautiful. As this is the first show, I thought I should reveal a few things about myself. So I asked a former neighbour, Vanessa Chan, to interview me. Vanessa is a high-flying, high-tech executive whose yoga and meditation classes are well-known here in Hong Kong, where we both live. In this podcast, I tell you something about my background as a musician, educator, businesswoman, and more recently, a writer of children's books. But very quickly, I move to the incident which will probably define the rest of my life, the rape and murder of my younger daughter in 2017. Vanessa reveals her difficulties during childhood, the adoption of her mother, the discovery of their biological family in the US, as well as a painful divorce, explaining how and why she's shifted to living on a more spiritual plane. Well, I could resonate with that, so we chatted a bit about our beliefs, then moved on to the charities I've established in my daughter's name, Becky's Bathhouse in Greece, Rebecca Dykes Writers in the US, and Becky's Button in Lebanon, where Becky was killed. We also touch on volunteering in maximum security prisons. I hope you enjoy the show. Maybe enjoy isn't the right word, but any feedback will be gratefully received. Hi, Jane. Hi, Vanessa. It's great to be here. It's great to be here as well. Um, so I think we should start explaining how we met each other. So we provide a little bit of context. Why not? You go first. Okay, sure. So um, I have been in high tech for a long time, but on the side, I'm also a certified yoga and meditation teacher. And a few years ago, I was doing these pro bono um, yoga classes, mostly for helpers, but I also offer, I also open my class to the community and Jane was one of my students and, um, and that's how we met. So we've only met twice. We both live on Lantau Island, but I thought you would be, you were the perfect person to tell our listeners a little bit about me because you, you know very little. And I, and I, I feel before I start inviting many guests, um, to my podcast that, Listeners maybe should would like to know a little bit about me. Yes, of course. So I have a few questions I want to ask um, to prompt. So first question, who are you really, Jane, um, as a person? Like, you know, where did you grow up? Just the basics, you know, and how, how did you come to Hong Kong? Uh, we're recording this podcast in the beautiful, right, during the Chinese New Year in the beautiful um, TST um, Hong Kong area. How did you come here? I was born in London, educated in England and came out with my first husband in 1985. He was a barrister and I was a viola player in the Hong Kong Philharmonic. Oh, wow. Okay. And what was that like? What was Hong Kong like? It was a very dynamic place. Hong Kong has been very good to me. I mean, I very quickly moved into media, um, into business, into teaching. But one common thread has been my music. As a viola player, I've played in a variety of places 
from classical all the way to canto pop in the in the 90s when mm. canto pop was so popular. Mm, I see. Um, so music is a passion of yours. Cut to the quick, it was, and it still could be in the future. But when um, I lost my daughter, everything changed, mm. and I haven't reached so much to music as much as poetry and a spiritual life. Right. So let's talk about a little bit about your daughter as well. And I remember the first time I, you know, you came to my class. Um, of course, being a yoga teacher, I'm quite in tune to the energy in the room. And I remember looking at you thinking, this person is going through some stuff, but I'm going to leave it. Um, she's not ready to talk. And I can't remember how it came up. And I, I only remember that you told me in such a calm manner about your daughter, that you lost your daughter. It was almost like a passing by comment. And I was shocked because someone who has lost their daughter must feel very emotional and yet you were calm I wouldn't say you were at peace like you were you know obviously going through some stuff but I was um a bit shaken by how it's not what I expected Vanessa that's so perceptive of you um and remember I'm British so I'm naturally a stiff upper lip type and I'm introverted um, but there I was doing yoga and you spotted something and that led us to that conversation it must have been sometime after December 2017 because that's when she was killed um, she was raped and murdered in Lebanon by a taxi driver on her way home it was very quick it took everybody completely by surprise and I honestly, I don't remember telling you, but I do know myself that what can I say? What use, what use am I if I'm, I'm just in floods of tears or, you know, emotionally demanding? I just felt from the beginning that I must somehow accept this. This is going to be, demand the highest um, of me as a human being um, because I saw it as a, a line, if you like. I mean, it was very clear. I could actually ascend the line. I, I, I could go up or I could very, very quickly spiral downwards. And one thing I felt pretty strongly at the beginning is that I have to be strong for other people and I'm thinking particularly of Becky. She was called Becky. Becky's friends, they were devastated. Some of them still have not gone back to work. Um, their lives have been disrupted. And can you describe that journey from, you know, when we met, when the wound was clearly still fresh um, to this point what has been the journey like and what were the biggest lessons and transformation for you? It's a big question, I know. It's a huge question, but we can, we <laughs> we can break go it down. at it in chunks. Yeah, we break yeah. it down, yeah. So, um, shock at first. Sadness, sorrow. 
But as a writer, I am a writer. I came out here as a musician, but I very quickly moved into all kinds of other areas of work. And uh, when I was 50, I quit all my paid work and thought, okay, I'm going to be a writer. And I I was so happy in that mode. Mm, and I've actually published seven books set in Hong Kong. And they're published by Commercial Press. Then this happened and my knee-jerk reaction was to reach out for books. And I did. I read voraciously about grief, about loss. That helped me a lot. Because one thing that I wanted to understand my, about myself was that I never felt that poor me, why me? Because sexual violence is part of our human history since time immemorial. I mean, it's actually violence, you know, the, the strength and power of men that has actually brought the human race to where we are now. So I felt that I had to understand that that taxi driver was in a very evil mad state at the time and maybe that's the same for all men that perpetrate this kind of crime they are locked up in passion or anger or hatred and they do something that they may later regret and going back to why not me which is what I thought if you look at the statistics, there are hundreds and thousands of parents who lose their children to violence every year. And I imagine there is anger in you somewhere. Deep down, I'm driven by anger. I acknowledge that. But it hasn't manifested itself very clearly, let's say. And I mean, if you if you read the sort of typical five stages of, of grief, I thought, no, 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 that doesn't apply to me. Um, but an anger is one of them in that list. And um, but deep, deep down, I I'm aware that it is an emotion which drives me forward. I think I got rid of many emotions, let's say, by writing my memoir. Because after reading and understanding problem in the world, it's, it's very common. Then I reached out to my pen, my keyboard, and I actually wrote a memoir which allowed me to verbalise about my process and it also gave me a chance to document Becky's life because she was 30 years old. She was a humanitarian worker working at the British Embassy on projects for refugees and disadvantaged local Lebanese. And it was such an extraordinary case because there aren't that many psycho weirdo type murders in Lebanon. Lebanon is a very family focused like Hong Kong, actually, like China. Mm. You know, the, these kind of 
serial killer. Um, they're, they're not so commonplace. So after writing, I found that I was more peaceful. Plus, abstaining from pills, alcohol, mm. anything, you know, which is a natural way to to dampen my raw emotions. Mm-hmm. I did it, I, I, I like to think that I transcended them by exercise, mm-hmm. by meditation, mm-hmm. by yoga, and by reading spiritual books. And that's why I'm, I'm, I'm so interested to talk to you because I'm, we're friends on Facebook, mm-hmm. right? And, and, um, you know, maybe, maybe for our listeners, you can, you can tell me a little bit about your journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, you talk about the loss of your daughter, right? Like in the middle of your normal life. So I guess maybe for my family, um, there was loss in the beginning because my mom was adopted. And I think that really impacted my childhood because unfortunately people do treat you differently. I mean, they're shadow, shallow, they're mean. And, you know, back then for a very, you know, traditional Chinese um, society in Hong Kong, some people do look down on you when you don't have parents. And so I grew up with a very loving adopted grandmother uh, from Saikong. She's a farmer. So I had a very unusual childhood. But I was very aware. My grandma was really good at that because you're supposed to let your, you know, your daughter and your and her family know that, you know, you're not the biological uh, grandmother. Um, it's a very healthy thing to do psychologically. So I was very, very aware. She was just my adopted grandmother. But she has so much love for us. And it was just such a contrast to the loss of my um, biological family, right? So growing up, I always had that contrast. And I actually um, have been looking for my biological family in my heart. And I pray my other family members, like my brother and my mom and my dad, are not as keen. But in my heart, I was searching myself and you wouldn't believe it last year we found found them them. and it's really a miracle you know um and they're not even in hong kong i remember so um there's another story about my professional life which you know i work really hard and i damaged you know my gut basically right and so i always had gut issues i had like you know multiple um health issues nothing major but you know irritating um and it's also nothing that the western doctors can can resolve so i started going to see naturopath doctor and at some point he's like you know i really need to look at your dna because you can't give me a whole lot of information about your family um, and this is like a new thing. You can use DNA to kind of track that. I've done my own. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, why not? Since I don't have my family, you know, half of my medical history uh, of my family. So I sent my, um, the first step is to send your your blood sample to, to the 23 and the yes. saliva, right? And then you download the DNA to specialists to analyze certain diseases. And so I remember distinctly at the moment I submitted my saliva sample, I was like, 
is this going to be how I find my biological family? Is it possible? But I was like, there's no way because like, what are the chances that they're in the US, right? And because you were in you, the US at the time. No, no, no. I was in Hong Kong. Okay. But I know 23andMe, 80% of the users are probably from Western oh, got it. countries, right? Um, what if they're still in Hong Kong or China or somewhere in Asia? They wouldn't be using 23andMe. So anyways, it wasn't the reason I was doing it, like I said, but I was like, there is a chance, you know. So the first um, the first person that got matched was my cousin from my dad's side who lives in the U.S. I was like, oh, okay. Um, but then interestingly, after nine months, I got another match that was not my last name. So I knew it wouldn't be from my dad's side. And I sent this guy a message on 23ME. And he didn't reply, right? And so, of course, I went to Facebook. But, you know, Chinese names are so hopeless, right? Like, well, it's like his name is Walter, right? So typical Sorry. English name and then a Chinese last name is never easy to find anybody in the yeah. world, right? And this is like, like you're finding a needle in a sea, right? Like Chinese said. <laughs> but yeah, I did find him and that's how we got matched. And so my family is in San Francisco. So that was really like how I started my life kind of like, you know, like my my mom was, um, you know, basically lost her family and I grew up not knowing about my family. So there was always this hole in my heart, right? I was like quite insecure, um, and then, but then I was very academically and also driven, yeah. very driven. I was also you know, musically talented, um, also quite artistic and, and I did quite well at school and then also professionally. But then, um, another incident that, that was big, that was transformative, uh, in my life is my divorce. So I got married quite young, right after my MBA, um, in 2006, but we got divorced within, you know, about five, in about five years. So, um, it didn't last very long, the marriage. And professionally, after doing quite okay for some time, there was something happened to me professionally as well. So just, it was a perfect storm. Both hit me quite hard. I was on my knees. I had to take meds. I couldn't sleep. I lost a lot of weight. My friends were very worried about me. And and I my health was because I've been work, beating up myself so much. I think because of that insecurity from the childhood, um, I had a lot of imposter, uh, imposter syndrome. syndrome. And it made me too driven to the point where I just drove my health to ground. And there were lots of red lights uh, on my health report. And I remember going to my doctor almost crying, thinking that can't be my story. That <laughs> I work so hard. I'm an overachiever. Mm. I got married and then um, I got really sick. I, I, that can't be my story. Um, and I decided to live differently. That was the... That was what sparked my decision to live differently. And ever since then, long story short, I've been searching and, you know, prototyping, trying and error, and, and I live completely differently. And if you ask my friends who have known me for a long time, even my family, I'm a drastically different person. I mean, of course, at heart, like my soul is the same. Um, it's more like, it's like they, I have removed layers and layers of dirt and they can finally see who I actually am now and and I think that's why we are connected like 
almost emotionally and spiritually, right? And how we can connect emotionally is that there's something very negative that's happened in your life. Yeah. You're, you're suffering. Yeah. Right? You're suffering. And then how can you get out of it? And for me, it's been more turning to the, to the spiritual, yeah. becoming a spiritual aspirant than, than anything else. You can't solve problems at the same level as the problems. You have to elevate, and that's what I've learned. And so as a person, the way to elevate your vibrations is really you know, going from physical to emotional and then to spiritual, right? Um, and once you elevate yourself, you see there's so much clarity. And you know, true happiness is when you can devote yourself to your dharma, right? To, to your destiny. And you can't really do that if you can't see clearly what your dharma is, why you're here. And I think once you find that you're just in a flow and you're so much happier. I'd like to know so much more about your life. Thank you so much for sharing. One thing that interests me is that you've reached out for, for Buddhism. Yeah. I was brought up a non-believer. Before my daughter was killed, I was visiting maximum security prisons here in Hong Kong. And I think I found God or some mystery in the dynamics of what happened mm. there. So before my daughter was, was killed, I was actually reading the Bible to understand Christianity for the first time. And okay, well, as a school kid, I, I had to sing an assembly, some hymn every day, but it didn't resonate at all because my parents didn't have any religious belief. So, so I was reaching out, what, reading the Bible and attending some classes for possible um, confirmation and baptism. I hadn't even been baptized. Mm. Then this happened to Becky. So the Bible has been very useful, but I've come to the stage where I describe myself more as a pantheist. I think... All religions mm. are basically saying the same thing. There's really just one answer to life, and all religions point you to that. That's right, right? To me, it's love your neighbor. Yes. Love, it's love. the power of it's love. love and light. The power of unconditional love, yes. which is a very tall order. But in terms of living my daily life, the philosophy of Zen Buddhism appeals to me the most mm -hmm. because it helps me to keep peace, to keep uh, healthy, eat, you know, eat healthily, meditation, walking in nature, the power of nature, all these very, very basic things. Mm -hmm. Here I am six years later and I feel this view of daily living, this way of daily living, I should say, rather than the view, is has been more helpful than anything. I agree. Yeah. And it's just, so that's why I'm passionate about teaching now, because I wish there was someone there when I was on my knees to give me a, a easier to read, easier to digest, digest, you know, almost like a instruction, you know, to, so that I can accelerate the healing. It was a, a long journey. Um, and that's why, you know, I have a blog now. I, I write articles about it. 
um, because I would like to apply what I've learned in business, right? In communications, in, you know, business development. How do you, you know, really articulate a complex idea um, to someone, you know, in a way that they can actually execute. And I'm still exploring. I'm not saying that I'm an expert. I think we're all <laughs> like too. improvising. But if I can shorten that path, even just by one day for someone, I think that's meaningful. And I always think that when I teach, um, you know, I'm not giving them the answer, but I want to open the door so that they are curious enough to dig deeper themselves. And that's really sometimes all you need to do. You're giving. The joy of giving. I've discovered that too since losing Becky. I, I had no idea of the charitable works that are being done in this world. And my instinct was to keep her, her name alive by doing things linked to her death. So I have Becky's Bathhouse. That was the first charity I set up. And that was providing showers and laundry services to mainly Syrian refugees who were rocking up on Lesbos Island in Greece. And I did that because Becky was working primarily with Syrian refugees in Lebanon. So that was something that, you know, immediately I could feel that she was, her spirit was was still doing something on the on the relative time, you know, the relative time that, that us human beings are li living on this plane. And then I moved to Rebecca Dyke's Writers. Interestingly, um, I did an MFA in creative writing at Vermont in the, in the US. And many of my classmates reached out to me because the news about Becky mm -hmm. went around the world. And they actually clubbed together and bought a star, which was really sweet of them. A real star. I still, I still would like to go to somewhere clear enough that I could see it. But here we are a few years later, and we've set up this. Well, it's not a, it's not a registered charity, but it is a it's a movement. It's called Rebecca Dykes Writers. We're trying to build a community, and as kidlit authors, right. We are working on writing stories about very traumatic events mm -hmm. in a way that will wake children up. Mm -hmm. One, that bad stuff happens in the world, be careful, but don't scare them. There's a real art in this. But secondly, and maybe more importantly, for, for children who have a difficult family background for whatever reason, and by reading our stories, they're going to think, oh, I'm not alone. So that's Rebecca Dyke's writers. But the thing that's taking most of my time now is Becky's Button. Do you, have you... Tell, tell us more about it. Well, I thought very clearly from the beginning that her, her life probably would have been saved if she was wearing some kind of panic button. So I worked with people here in China to design a button to produce it. And we did a pilot scheme in Greece. And now we're really focusing on Lebanon. Why? Because in Lebanon, it's a small country, population of six million. 
that means about about three million women. I have support from the top to the bottom. The Lebanese government, for example, the British Embassy um, arranged a, a memorial for Becky. She, she, there were three quite major events in in Lebanon and London, and the president came. You know, the head of security forces came. Everybody knows about Becky's case because she was working as a, a British diplomat. So not only do I have that kind of support, but I have support from local NGOs and I'm trying to get the button into the hands of the most disadvantaged women. It's hard because of the logistics and now because of the war, <laughs> not in Lebanon, but so close by, uh, it's still a very precarious area. Mm. But in Lebanon... My challenge is that I want to talk about sexual violence in a way that make men change their behaviour. And I need to rise above religious beliefs, um, above certainly above politics, and just address the issue of why men attack women. Mm. And ideally... To, to create some cultural shift where men will think, okay, I'm, I'm going to protect my women. I'm certainly not going to prey on them. So my challenge is to say something very, very simple. I think this is where I'm most powerful as a bereaved mother, just to speak very simply uh, to people in Lebanon. Actually, it could be worldwide, but to men, think about it. What if that what if Becky was your girlfriend yeah. or your or your wife? What if she was your daughter? How would you feel? And I like to think, because we're focusing on Lebanon, that the message will come out and it's a particularly interesting country because as I say, um it is a very religious country. It's actually the Holy Land. Yeah. And there are I think there are 18 registered religions which are, which have their own courts actually related to sexual harassment and and rape and that's part of the the, the problem that violence against women is still rampant there because the laws there you've got the security forces there but there's sort of muddiness in the middle in terms of enforcement I think I've probably gone off subject to what your original question was. No, no, no. Um, so what is your next uh, milestone for Becky Button, right? That's your, your, your main focus at this particular moment. It is. Because, yep, I was angry at the beginning and wanted to tell the world, you know, this is terrible. This is a parent's worst nightmare. What are we going to do about it, people? And I've gradually kind of narrowed my scope down, 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 down. Becky's button in Lebanon, that in itself, to make any kind of impact. And we're talking about, as I say, a cultural shift, you know, a change of behaviour. Mm, then Lebanon is the is the place where I'm going to be able to, I, th I hope, make a difference now. In May this year, we are going to do a second bike ride in Beirut in the equivalent of Central, 
dead central. And there is a local man who is organising a bike ride there. He has a he has he owns Lebanon by bike and he offers his bikes free for one day for women to uh, for anybody to come actually. And interestingly, it's more we're focusing more on young men and men to raise awareness about sexual harassment. This is what happens, even on the Corniche, which is this fancy area we are. So that's going to happen. And I got really strong support last year. And uh, we're also going to organise a concert. Because one way I'm thinking is to grab people's hearts by listening to some beautiful music. Mm. Well, we, in Chinese, we call it, um, you know, when you hear really good music, it's like um, the strings in your heart are playing, right? I love that. Yeah, it's like the viola is in your heart. Yes. There's an, a strong, visceral, emotional response to music, if it touches you. I mean, yeah. you know, we all, there's very, lots of very different modes of music. But the idea is to, okay, cut all the blah, blah, you know, statistics and reports and what are we going to do about violence? And I, I often think if we can just open people's hearts again, because right now I think a lot of people's hearts are blocked. And that's actually causing a lot of the problems in the world, right? Including environmental issues, including sexual violence, et cetera, et cetera. It's because they're not connected to their heart. Their hearts are closed for themselves and others. And if we can just open it up, whatever method there is, it could be music, it could be yoga, it could be poetry, anything that just open that up a little bit again so that, you know, it's a slow process, but we have to start somewhere. To live by the heart. It sounds so cliche, but I think um, it's the essence of self-awareness and enlightenment. Music is, is a mode to do that. And... A question you asked earlier made me think. I had to kind I had to question myself right at the beginning, because when I heard the news and I replayed a zillion times about what could have happened, and of course I I still don't know, mm-hmm. but here are the facts I know. He was a twenty six year old guy. He had been in and out of foster homes in and out of jail, mm. very, didn't even, didn't know his father, his father's not on the birth certificate, um, poor education. He'd recently come out of jail and he was, I imagine, angrier and more frustrated than he'd ever been. And then he met my daughter. You know, I still mm. cry mm. for her daily. That's the reality, <laughs> despite my facade. I thought... Maybe, you know, if I had a son and, 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 and my son had had that kind of upbringing, I'm not saying I forgive. I could forgive. But that was my challenge for me, Vanessa. From the beginning, it's like I didn't, you know, I didn't immediately think, OK, you know, he deserves to go to prison forever. Chop off his head. Um, I didn't. 
You know, this reminds me of a good friend of mine. He um, he was a very successful executive, and towards the end of his career, he decided to go back to his first love, which is psychology, and he became a therapist again. And he worked at the New York, you know, the prisons in New York. And he told me something that I still remember today. And I, I think about it a lot. That when you talk to these prisoners, when you work with these prisoners, when they tell you their stories, you put yourself in their shoes. You are also a human. Can you guarantee that you would not have done, have turned out the same way, have done the same thing? You actually cannot if you can, if you can look at it objectively. And that basic understanding and, you know, without ego, without arrogance, really looking at it objectively, really bring peace to you, actually, even if you are the victim. That's what he told me. That endorses how I felt doing prison work as well. Um, I believe we all have the seeds of evil in us, and it's just a question of focusing on the good seeds in our, in, in our gardens, right. the plant Good soil, good nutrition, good compost. Yeah, to make that area of your mind grow and let those evil, bad, negative instincts. We're talking about instinct, especially for men, right? Yeah. And it's continuous. This work is like drinking water, right? It's like eating every day. It's, it does not stop. All of us, if we want to have that peace and balance in life we all have to do the basic maintenance work and sometimes a big wash off at retreat or whatever you do to get rid of those big regrets big pain right but daily maintenance is so important that's what i found i love fitchnet hands quote uh, the way out is in right yes. so all these external things can be happening to one everyone right we all have pleasure pain happiness sadness and then but how to keep rooted and not overly affected by that because that is the nature of being human and for me that's what I've been striving towards to keep myself strong mm, yeah not for my sake actually I you know I've discovered a whole new breed of human being honestly given my background the kind that are rocking up in these countries, very difficult situations, in order to help people more disadvantaged than themselves. It's been such an eye-opener. I feel that I'm a better person as a result of going there and seeing that, and actually now trying to do something myself to these people who often, they don't want to be there, you know, that the things that have happened are way beyond their control, especially women. Mm -hmm. So selfless service, that's where I'm at and that's where I'm, I'm striving to be an effective voice. Yeah. Yes, and you're doing great. So um, I, ha I do have um, another question for you. Oh, please. So please think about Anything that I haven't asked you yet, what would you like to share? What more would you like to share? The pain of losing a child. I feel it physically, mentally, emotionally, at every level. It's very painful, guys. And 
please hug your loved ones. Keep your more vulnerable loved ones closer, even in, in your community. Keep them close. Try to help and certainly try not to harm them. Thank you, Jane. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you so much, Vanessa, for being here. Bye. Bye. Thanks again for listening to Mending Lives with me, Jane Hong. It was produced by Brian Ho. You can find relevant links to this show in the comments section. I would not, could not be doing this without many people's support and encouragement. So until next time, goodbye.